Welcome to this episode of CEO Perspectives. CEO Perspectives are conversations that take an objective, nonpartisan look at a range of subjects that matter most to business leaders. I'm Steve Odlin from the Conference Board and the host of this series. And in today's conversation, we're going to do a deep dive on the collapse of two high-profile banks. In our wide-ranging conversation, we're going to discuss how the new regulations that followed the 2008 financial crisis failed here, why, and regulations aside, where were the basic management mistakes? Where was the board? And lastly, from a governance perspective, what do we have to do to make sure it doesn't happen again? We'll unpack all those questions and more in today's conversation with Paul Washington, the executive director of the ESG Center here at the conference board. You are listening to CEO Perspectives, a podcast by the conference board. Paul, welcome. Delighted to be with you, Steve. Thanks. So, Paul, your claim to fame now is running the ESG Center at the conference board, but you do have a back background in governance and banking, which is a great combination for today's conversation. Tell our listeners a little bit more about what your experience has been in that area. Sure. Well, I had both the good fortune and the misfortune to start my career in the private sector during the savings and loan crisis in the early 1990s. I joined the Dime Savings Bank of New York, which is one of the biggest savings institutions on the East Coast, 1989. It was there through 1995. During that time, the bank almost went under. And um, we experienced um, all that you could kind of go through during that time. Um, we faced significant credit risk. The FDIC said we were in danger of imminent seizure. They rated us as number five, and we were the only bank that went from being rated number five to being rated number one, which is the best capitalized, best run banks within about 18 months. And we did that in part by improving our governance. We went from having the FDIC say that our board was violating its fiduciary duties to saying it was one of the best run boards they had ever seen. Wow. I mean, that's a, that's a great story. And it, it's a success story, which shows you that not all of these issues need to end in disaster. But we have had a couple of disasters recently. And that uh, is a little scary, given that we thought that we had cor corrected all of this in 2008. Talk a little bit about the Silicon Valley Bank and Signature Bank, with both, which both collapsed. But there is also in here the Credit Suisse situation, which is had to undergo a forced marriage with UBS. Just talk generally about what happened with each of these. Sure. Well, let me talk about the U.S. institutions in particular. So these were classic examples of runs on the bank. And that's something that can threaten almost any institution. And what happened here was that um, about 78% of the deposits at SVB were uninsured and about 90% of the deposits at Signature Bank were not insured by the FDIC. That's because they were over the $250,000 limit. And when the, when the depositors lost confidence in those institutions, they withdrew their money at a remarkable rate, $42 billion flowing out the door at Silicon Valley Bank, for example. And no bank really, is able to withstand that kind of withdrawal of withdrawal of, of deposits in that short amount of time. So the depositors panicked. And, you know, the only way the bank can cover those uh, those withdrawals is by doing a fire sale of assets. And in this case, um, the banks didn't have the assets to support those withdrawals. 
Well, and if it, 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 they did originally, but the value of those assets had declined so much because of interest rates, which yeah. is another whole wrinkle in in all of this. Yeah, uh, that you know that that leads us to a discussion of of tenor. You know the yeah. the length of investments that that banks make with depositors' money versus the loans that they make, which was in this case long on the investment, yeah. short on the promises talk yeah about and banks basically face i think four types of of risk that are just core to managing the business the first is interest rate risk you take in money and you've got to pay your depositors whatever it, the market requires to get the deposits in the door and then you have to invest them um somewhere to earn the money to pay your depositors right and in this case both banks had invested in assets in treasury securities and other securities that were long term and so when interest rates went up the value of those assets went down we have seen this movie before this is exactly what led to the SNL crisis in the early 1990s so we have seen it before the second great risk that come, that banks face is credit risk, which is you lend money to people who aren't going to pay you back. And that's what we saw in 2008. There are a couple other risks that sit out there for banks. One is regulatory risk. That is actually the regulators may take action that is not in the best interest of your institution, may force you to shut down prematurely. And then the final one is liquidity risk, which we saw here, which is having enough cash on hand to uh, pay your depositors. And that can be driven by a crisis in confidence. So, you know, what you saw here was interest rate risk, which people thought had sort of been put to bed, you know, decades ago has reared its head and uh, led to uh, basically liquidity risk run on the banks and then the collapse of those two institutions. Well, it's had, you know, it seems uh, like enough risk clearly to sink anything. But, yeah. you know, I, I, Paul, I thought in 2008, we went through a crisis. You obviously went through the savings and loan crisis before that. We've got regulations from um, every crisis that we've done and piled one on top of the other. And so, you know, every time we go through this, we do more regulations and more laws, and then we find out they weren't enough. So why why didn't the regulations that we put in place before cover this? Well, I think some of what we saw in the wake of uh, the financial crisis of 2008-2009 was focused on on credit risk, um, which was not present here. Some of it was focused on shifting more power to shareholders and away from the board. And that's not really what was at play here. I actually think that what happened here is a failure of basic blocking and tackling. And that's the management of interest rate risk, credit risk, the other risks. I mean, it's it's just core risk management that was really uh, uh, the the shortcoming here. And, you know, that's something that all the rules in the world will not necessarily save you from if management's not doing its job, if the board's not doing its job. And in this case, there's a question of whether the regulators who were doing their regular evaluations of these institutions were moving quickly enough um, to when they saw problems and forcing the banks to take uh, faster action um, and whether they the regulators themselves were focusing sufficiently on interest rate risk, which everyone thought had been put to bed decades ago. Right. And so now well, that's that's mostly Silicon Valley Bank, SVB. Let's talk a little bit about Signature Bank, because that is a, a New York bank. Yeah. And ironically, on the on the board of Signature Bank was 
none other than one Barney Frank. Correct. The author, co-author of the Dodd-Frank bill and the regulations that were supposed to have cleaned this up last time. So what is the deal with Signature Bank? Well, in that case, this is really um, an issue of con contagion. I mean, there, because so much of their deposits came um, from, were, were uninsured, I mean, you know, about 90%, that when the um, tech investors, uh, this, pardon me, the tech depositors in um, California panicked over uh, Silicon Valley Bank, it had a direct contagious effect on the depositors in um, in uh, Signature Bank. And that bank, as you point out, it was a state chartered bank. And then the state uh, of New York, uh, the banking department uh, and the FDIC moved to, to shut it down. Okay. Now, there is some political overtone here that, you know, because Signature Bank was heavily involved with crypto that they were unfairly dealt a hand. Here. I don't see. That? No, I don't. I honestly don't see that. Um, you know, sure. Uh, Signature Bank took some crypto deposits. It wasn't a huge percentage of their deposits. That's not what caused the the the, the threat to the bank, the run on the bank. Um, I, I don't see this. In fact, you know, my one hope but I think it's a bit of a futile hope here, is that the analysis of the issues that led to the downfall of these two banks isn't politicized and that the solutions aren't just, let's take off the shelf those ideas that we've had about bank regulation or executive compensation or whatever it is that's been sitting around, that have been sitting around for decades that we haven't been able to get into legislation and just plug them in as a solution here. I, I think that's sort of just grabbing things off the shelf uh, to uh, to solve yesterday's problems with you know whatever's at hand isn't the approach here. Right. Okay. So coming back to ABCs, you know, because that's what yeah. you're saying. It's it's just it's yeah. basically you're saying it's mismanagement because yeah. it's just a it's a failure to to keep your eye on interest rate risk, which you're saying, you know, which which sounds fancy and you know it's one of the four risks. And if you're not in the banking world, it sounds like oh my word, that is really complicated and confusing. But if you're in the banking world, you know that's like walking, talking, and drinking water, isn't it? It absolutely is. And look, this is. This is something that goes beyond just financial institutions. You know, a lot of the leading companies in America are incorporated in Delaware. And there are some Delaware court decisions that have come down and have said that the board of directors has a duty not only to have make sure the company has an adequate system of internal controls over risk, but that they're actively monitoring it. And that goes to core business risks. So there's a decision in the Boeing case, which is the airline safety decision in what's called the Bluebell case about um, food safety, about ice cream safety. So by, you know, uh, parallel reasoning here, you know, your board has an obligation to stay on top of the systems um, that are there to monitor interest rate risk, credit risk, and all that. The board has to be able to um, to understand what's going on. But I'll take this a step forward. The original failure here is with management, and happy with to management. talk about that. Yeah, because the board is the board's an oversight group. It's it's not a management group. It doesn't run day to day operations, and so this is. This is a group of managers who apparently didn't get a memo that the Fed was raising interest rates. And so therefore that their value of their treasury securities on in which they had invested long term and all, you know, using their shareholder money and their depositors money, that that, that that would drop in value. You know, when interest rates go up, 
those bonds that were prior to that are less valuable and Correct. the price dropped because the new bonds are at a higher interest rate. Well, this is just, I mean, it, this is basic it's, 101. It's, it is. That was what I was going to say. This is 101 stuff, but I can tell you from my experience working directly at a bank and then knowing a lot of other folks in the banking industry, but this applies even more broadly, is that there's a lot of denial that happens here, right? Uh, the company, the bank has adopted a strategy and an, an asset liability management strategy, and they stick to it even when it's pretty clear that it's not going to work out. Another thing that goes along with this denial is because it's not just out and out denial, you know, you've got to have some reason to deny it, is they will say to themselves, well, we've got a model. We've modeled all this out, and we've got this guy who sits a few levels down below the CEO who's really run this all through the model and will be fine, you know, absent some catastrophic event. Um, so, it, you know, what what I think is really at the issue here at issue here is you know, the CEO, the CFO, the senior management of the bank really has to have a robust, honest assessment of risk and acceptance that those risks are existing and then face them head on because, you know, we, we, we've, we've seen this movie too many times. Well, you know, and, and and all of that is is undoubtedly true. But I mean, you just sit there and you go, okay, we're going from a zero interest rate environment. We've done the Fed has moved over four hundred basis points. Those bonds that we bought at yes. zero, you know, effectively when when the discount rate was zero, are going to be worth less. We've got a whole bunch of investment there. If anybody finds that out, you know, that's going to cause yes. some panic. The first thing you do when the Fed starts increasing interest rates is you change the portfolio of of your investments right i mean you yeah. don't just you don't right. just sit and say and it wasn't like they were trying to fix a a tiny little problem the fed the fed i mean they telegraphed it they it took a year that, to move 400 basis points and then when they were telegraphing it's going to be at least 100 more um, at that point, maybe even beyond that. I mean, it, it, they couldn't have, this was no surprise. You're right. This was, this, there was no surprise here. People saw this coming, but, uh, you know, I think, you know, the dime savings bank went through this near death experience with credit risk. And then, you know, guess who bought the dime savings bank of New York, Washington mutual, Washington mutual made a carbon copy of the mistakes that had been made at the dime. Literally, the same mistakes, even with some of the same board members who served in both institutions. So I think there's just something, you know, something about human nature here that's that plays out, which is people um, sort of don't want to face up to the risks. They think they may be smarter than it. They think they may have better systems than they had in the past. They think they might have hedged against it, although in this case, they didn't. And so, uh, you know, this it's it's to my mind, it's a fundamental failure of honest risk assessment and honest risk management. Okay, but but also if they had said okay, interest rates are going, we're going to have to we're going to have to sell these bonds in advance, they would have had to take a loss. Correct. And that would have hit their earnings per share because these these this bank was a public Correct. company meaning that it has stock that traded on a public exchange, so therefore they would have hit their their stock price. And so What's your view of that? Is it is this all driven because they didn't want to hit the stock price and they said, oh, we'll just outlast it and 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 uh, you know we'll just we'll keep the stock up and everything will be fine. You know, I don't know because I wasn't in the room, but I will tell you that um 
there is sometimes just a fair amount of wishful thinking or someone will say, well, you know what? That's what other people predict will happen with interest rates. But we actually think the Fed's going to stop. We'll have time. And look, over time, right? Over time, this all would have worked, could have worked out, right? You know, um, they eventually, uh, each of the banks would have been able to turn over their asset portfolio. Um, but the, the issue was that people didn't want to I think, face up to the real risk they were running that of, of you know, as they're reporting um, their balance sheet information, that there could, in fact, be a crisis of confidence in the institution. And that's something even the best boards and even best management don't want to admit, that they could face a crisis of confidence when word gets out. And that's what happened here. We're talking about governance and bank failures. I'm going to take a short break. and We'll be right back. What does the future of work mean for your employees? How will your company navigate ESG? Will there be a global recession? At the Conference Board, our experts translate the latest research and economic analysis into insights and real-time problem-solving for your organization. Membership at the Conference Board provides your team with an assortment of knowledge from economics, marketing and communications, ESG, public policy, and human capital. As a member, you'll have access to our center experts, member-exclusive events, data and benchmarking tools, and peer sharing that will help you understand the present and shape the future. Consider becoming a Conference Board member today by visiting www.conference-board.org. Welcome back to CEO Perspectives. I'm your host, Steve Odlin from the Conference Board, and I'm joined today by Paul Washington, the head of the ESG Center at the conference board. Okay, so uh, Paul, before the break, we were talking about management's role in this, and you know how much of uh, these bank failures are you know just ABCs. Let's let's just pivot a little bit back to the board. You mentioned the board of directors and their oversight role. What should the board have done differently? Right. Well, you know this is based on publicly reported information, but I'll I'll just talk about SVB. Um, so. Uh, I think it's been reported that that organization went without a chief risk officer for for several months. I think that was one of the issues that um, that's that's like running without an engineer for your ship, right? Um, you know, and that's that's no a real oversight. that's a real no internal oversight. That's yeah. a real risk. Another issue is whether the board had um, individuals who had experience in the industry or in aligned industries in an area. Um, of risk management, right? Um, apparently, that was absent here. Now, not saying that everyone who serves on a bank board needs to be a former banker. That's probably not even a healthy thing to do. But you have to make sure that you fully understand all the risks that um, that you're being faced with. The other thing that is really striking to me is that the you know in this case with uh, SVB, the Fed issued warnings to to the bank. Um, it was delivering regulatory reports, telling the bank what it needed to do. And you know, I can tell you from my own experience, a board should be highly responsive to that. Sometimes those um, reports are written in a slightly obscure and oblique manner, but 
from what's been reported in the press, that board was on notice that the regulators uh, found very fundamental issues. And the board, you know, this was a time months ago for the board to be calling emergency meetings to uh, to address the problem. Okay, but let's go back to this com composition of the board because this this is an issue in banking, but it's an issue across every industry. And you've written about this and spoken about this as we have sought to diversify boards in every way possible. In some cases, we have moved away from requiring that there be a skill set right. that is uh, that is appropriate to the whatever business they were in. And so, in this case. A lot of smart people, a lot of good people, but without without a lot of banking experience. Yeah. So you want people with bank with industry experience. You want people in um, adjacent industries. That's also very helpful. You want to make sure you have a very robust director education program because you know in this case these were fundamental risks that um, everyone on the board should be quite familiar with. Um, but we are living in a world of evolving risks, evolving crises, and evolving opportunities. And so. Uh, you know, taking board education very seriously is 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 uh, something that companies ought to do. So, for example, just because you have the author of the Dodd Frank bill on your board doesn't mean you've got um, regulatory risk or credit risk covered. You actually have to make sure that all of your board members are fluent in all of those uh, major risks that banks uh, face because they all need to be able to work collaboratively to address them. In fact, having one sort of outsized expert on your bank, on your board, don't care what kind of industry you're in, um, can pose a real risk. But going back to you know the, the fact that these are public companies now, you know bank, banks used to be family owned. They mm -hmm. you know or they were partnerships where uh, partners pooled their own money, and so the risk of their investments and of their loans were personal to them in the in the sense that it, it was a personal loss to board members, management, if any of these things didn't play out. Now when you're raising capital through the you know the stock market through public markets it kind of becomes other people's money that you're playing with talk about the moral hazard of banks that are public companies versus private banks or partnerships yeah, well, actually, the Dime Savings Bank of New York, where I started my career, started as a mutual institution where it was effectively owned by its depositors, right? And then it converted to stock ownership. Um, you can be a successful bank. The world's leading banks are publicly and be publicly traded. That's what the leading banks in the world are. They they are they raise money through equity markets, um, and if they're well managed, you know that's good for the system because there's more money flowing into the banking system, which is the lifeblood of of a capitalist economy, right? And so it's actually a good thing to have. In my view, um, to have um, public companies bank have banks be public companies, they don't all, all have to be it. But I think that is a good model. But I think what goes with being a publicly traded bank is a profound sense that you are custodians of the public's trust. You know, 
your deposits are either partially or it depends on what happens entirely insured by the FDIC. You have a responsibility um, to our economy, to our society that runs in many ways deeper than almost any other type of institution. I mean, it's essentially the same kind of moral obligation that you have in the healthcare industry, right? And I think you have that in the banking industry. And so I think that that requires sort of a different mindset, um, perhaps from your board members, a different mindset, perhaps from management, and frankly, um, from the investors who put their money in these institutions. I, you know, I'm not sure that um, investors who are uh, who are looking at investing in, in banks should be looking for a whole lot of outsized uh, alpha returns, right? They should probably be more focused on steady, reliable uh, returns than on making a killing in the market. And and this goes back to stakeholder management, uh, you know, because you're not just taking care of one stakeholder, you're taking care of multiple stakeholders, customers, employees, owners, community, environment, and you've got to make it all work. You've got to do it all in balance. And, and, and you, in the public trust, which is the, you know, serving the community is so important, not just to banks, but to many, many yeah. industries, you know, whether you're talking about uh, industries that uh, that rely on environmental or, or natural resources, whether you're talking about utilities that provide, you know, the, the underlying electricity, you know, in the energy that supports our country, whether you're talking about food, you know, that feed people. I mean, all of these things, you know, it, and so then you wonder, well, you know, you know, shouldn't the, should this have been? It, should there be some sort of ESG gauge or ESG measure that takes this all into effect and in, in, in risk being part of that? Yeah, I, it's it's something. Uh, first of all, I I agree with you. It's not just about banks, but banks do, as we've seen, have the capability of taking down the world economy, right? And so it is. There is a special responsibility there. And the notion of stakeholder capitalism, that you need to balance the interests of uh, and serve the interests of investors and customers and employees and communities and society at large, um, is especially true in the in the banking industry. And I'll, I'll tell you, one of the things that has been striking to us in our research, we recently put out a report on the role of the board in the era of ESG and stakeholder capitalism, is that boards um, actually feel, and they probably are doing a better job at looking at how well they're addressing certain discrete issues like, oh, here's how we're doing on greenhouse gas emissions or on water or on diversity, equity, inclusion. Boards do not necessarily have the same um, way of assessing how they're doing at serving the long-term welfare or even the state of their relationships with stakeholders of employees, customers, and others. They may have obviously consumer data, like yes, our customers love us, and you know they get some reports. But that sort of more comprehensive look at how you're serving multiple stakeholders, um, in, including the public at large, that's not built into board strategic planning, board risk assessment, and some of the fundamental board processes that um, that companies have. So I think that's an area of opportunity for boards is to build not just the what of ESG topics, but also the whom of stakeholders into their everyday decision making. Okay. So given that a lot of this was, you know, the ABCs or, you know, banking 101 kind of mistakes, what regulations need to change, what new laws need to be changed, or what 
monitoring practices need to be changed? What 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 should be done here to try to ensure that something like this doesn't happen again? You know, I I, I think that one thing I would take a close look at is the approach that the frontline regulators are are taking, the people who come in, the bank examiners, the bank inspectors, the people who come in and look at the the bank's balance sheet, who look at its its processes and so forth. I take a close look at that um, because in each case here, um, Silicon Valley's main bank and signature, they were both state chartered institutions. Um, and at least for a long time, federally chartered institutions tended to have more effective regulation than state chartered institutions. Also, we are working in an era where a lot of um, bank examiners have been working remotely. And I will tell you that I think this goes back to basic blocking and tackling. I would look at the quality and caliber um, and, and, and training of the bank examiners. I would look at the support they're receiving from their own management within the regulatory uh, you know, agencies. Um, are they getting the backing they need when they go into challenge management? In some cases, as was the case here, there can be a conflict of interest where the CEO of the of the bank you're regulating is actually serving on the regulatory board. Um, you know that was an issue way back in the 1990s with the savings and loan crisis. Um, so I would I would uh, look at the conflict of interest issue, but I would really look at the quality of the bank examination process and make sure that it's it's fully robust because I, I think that you know again these things often fall down when you're talking about the people involved and the training they receive and the support they receive from their senior management when the bank examiners are sometimes making tough calls and they got to be backed up. Liquidity rules? Yeah, I think that's an area here. I mean, I, I think that what happened here with the level of um, deposits that were were uninsured, and you know that can be addressed in a couple of ways. One would be by raising the FDIC insurance limit. Another is by looking at you know how much of your your balance sheet can be uh, uninsured deposits. I mean, the the average of of banks is you know is a fraction of what we saw at these two institutions. I, I I'm I'm actually sort of surprised that um, they were able to get away with that. Well, and and then you know, should there be hard and fast rules about the tenors of you know the the mismatch between the uh, long term investments and uh, and and their commitments? Well, you you know, you would hope that would just be done through the regular asset. Every every bank has an asset liability management yeah. committee, right? They all have the mechanisms. I, I think. Um, a lot of this has to do with are the people qualified? You know, one of the issues, and we've highlighted this in other areas, Steve, that sometimes the people who are responsible for they're on the board or they're in the, they're the CEO or they're leveled or so down, you know, they haven't been through some of these crises before. They didn't go through the 2008 crisis. They certainly, I mean, only a few of us are around long enough to have gone through the SNL crisis back in the early 1990s. But those lessons are equally valid today. And so I think part of it is you get people in who just think they know better than their predecessors or who don't bother learning the lessons of history. Paul Washington, thanks for being with us today. My pleasure, Steve. And thanks to all of you for listening in to CEO Perspectives. Please share CEO Perspectives with your colleagues, with your friends. Send it to your bankers. They could listen too. I'm Steve Odlin, and this podcast has been brought to you by the Conference Board. You have been listening to CEO Perspectives, a podcast by the Conference Board.